0: Hi, I'm Sharon Betters, and you are listening to a Health and Hope audio resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Corey Weathers, author of Sacred Spaces, My Journey to the Heart of Military Marriage, joins me for a conversation about her life as the wife of a military chaplain. Corey was the 2015 Armed Forces Insurance Military Spouse of the Year, and one of her responsibilities was to travel on a one week overseas holiday trip with US Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter. But Corey's goal in going on this trip was more than a holiday purpose, she had a personal goal, and it was to better understand her husband's employment. But what's really great about Corey's trip is that she did not keep what she learned to herself. She shares those experiences in her book, Sacred Spaces. Corey is also a licensed professional counselor and she hosts Life Giver Military Spouse podcast. But even more, Corey and her husband, Matt, co host marriage retreats. You can visit markinc.org, where we include contact information for Corey and the services that Matt and she offer to military families. So Corey, I am so looking forward to our conversation uh, because I have personal uh, relationships with military families, military families, and my own family. So I have a special place in my heart for what you are doing. But before we dive into our topic of military marriage, tell us a little about your life right now. Yeah, thank you, Sharon,
1: for having me. I'm so excited um, to be here and to share a little bit of my story, a little bit of Um, what's happening in military marriages right now. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that just like you either are in the military or know somebody that's in the military. Maybe they're a family member has been in military before them. And so I think our story actually relates with a lot of people. So as far as what we're doing right now, we are in, I believe, our fifth assignment since we joined active duty. When we first got married, I had no idea that my husband was going to be a chaplain. I had no idea we were going to be in the military. It was not on my radar at all. But here we are. We're five assignments in. We are currently at Fort Jackson in South Carolina. Many people know Fort Jackson as kind of like the boot camp of installations. This is where we get a lot of brand new soldiers coming through. And it also happens to be the schoolhouse for chaplains. So this is where chaplains start their boot camp as well. So my husband is right now at the chaplain schoolhouse teaching brand new chaplains how to do army and how to go out in the field and have grenades thrown at them. It's a lot of fun. And so that's where we are right now, which is very interesting that we're going to be actually talking about the story of Sacred Spaces because there is a good portion of this story that actually was when we were at Fort Jackson, we were here before And so we are back at
0: Fort Jackson again,
1: right where I think the story kind of actually takes off. Well,
0: if we can jump ahead from the beginning of your story to 2015, uh, you were chosen as the Armed Forces Insurance Military Spouse of the Year, a very great honor. And it's even, I think even more special when you realize that your husband had nominated you. I mean, he lives with you, so he knows who you are and yet he felt you deserved this honor. That opened up an opportunity for you to travel with U.S. Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter to the Middle East, and in particular to Afghanistan, which was very um, personal for you because that is where your chaplain husband was deployed, and really from that point came back a whole different person. What was your purpose in going on that trip? I think it's
1: such an interesting question that you're asking me, what was my purpose, because you know, so often, you know, what we think our purpose is, is so small compared to what God's purpose ends up being. But I will say that at the time, my purpose was that I knew that the Secretary of Defense had never taken a military spouse overseas to see deployment conditions before, who was not, you know, an employee of his, you know, that, that was their job. So this was the first time to take a military spouse who only gets to experience deployment from back at home, separated from her service member. And so so that was one purpose is that, you know, they wanted me to see what these deployment conditions were like. And I had the opportunity to see all, all all, the branches. I got to see the Air Force do what they do best. I got to see the Army. I got to see the Navy. I got to see the Marines. And that was eye-opening for me as well, to be able to just see how all the branches work together. And ultimately, Their goal and my goal at the time was, how do I take what I'm seeing and experiencing and touching and smelling and all of those things that our service members do when they're on a deployment, but how do I translate that in a way where military families back at home or maybe even their extended family members can hear it from a different angle and maybe um, appreciate it a little bit more, maybe from a different perspective And so that was my original purpose going into it, was how do I translate what I'm about to experience? But I know for me personally at the time, as I was getting ready for it, my purpose really started to evolve and change into, I really am going to get to go to a place that my husband has been to before, at least to the country that he's been to before. Because when, you know, I knew we were going to be entering Afghanistan, but at the time when I was getting ready to leave, I didn't know where in Afghanistan we were going to be. So, at the very least, I was, you know, I really knew that I was going to experience something that my husband had experienced, at least as close as I could get to it. They're obviously not going to put me in harm's way, but for me, it was, it very quickly turned into. I'm literally about to step into his boots and experience some of his experiences, and I very quickly realized I needed to pay attention to that because I knew it was going to actually change my perspective and my marriage as well.
0: I think, uh, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm remembering in your book, um, first of all, I was exhausted with your schedule. (laughs) I was imagining how tired you must have been by the end of each day, and yet also probably really. Lots of adrenaline pumping as you knew that each day was going to bring another experience. But what was it was really moving to know that you were going to experience the place where your husband experienced such uh, horrific trauma and how all of that was going to take on a reality to you that it hadn't. And I think that's a perfect segue into your book uh, when you talk about sacred spaces because you found out that you were gonna be creating some of those sacred spaces yourself in that place. So tell us, what is a sacred space and how does recognizing some of our experiences as married couples, as sacred spaces, help build communication, not only in military families, but for all families. Yeah,
1: so, you know, most people hear the term sacred space and they think it must be some spiritual event, and it can be. But for Matt and I, after a couple of deployments, we were really realizing that, like many couples and like many military couples, we were each having our own unique, separate experiences. And like a lot of military couples do, um, and I also see this within the first responder community as well, is that, you know, when you kind of come back together and you try to share what happened to you that day or what happened to you during a deployment, we were just not connecting because there's no way I could possibly understand what he had gone through. And in a lot of cases, I felt like there was not really a way he could fully understand what I had gone through. And so we started to feel like, we felt more separate than we felt together. And at some point we just kind of decided, we're just going to accept the fact that we just can't fully understand each other's experience. And we kind of just started to just live that way, kind of living these parallel lives. And it wasn't terrible. It wasn't like our marriage was falling apart necessarily. But at some point I just was like, this, this is not okay to me. It's not okay to experience these just severe gaps of our experiences and feeling like we can't understand each other. And And I remember during one reintegration, which for those who aren't military, we call reintegration when we come back from deployment, we have a period of time of kind of trying to get to know each other again and have that new normal. We were kind of fussing at each other because he was trying to share something that was really important and traumatic that had happened to him. And either I was asking questions or maybe I wasn't listening very well. I'm not really sure what was happening in that moment. Um, but he really felt he got very frustrated with me and felt like I wasn't respecting um, what this was for him. and and I, kind of in this angry kind of conflict moment, kind of said,, well, you know, well, I've gone through some things, and I feel like you know you you tell me how I could have done them better. And for me, those experiences were like it took everything in me to get through that moment without you. And so we really realized in that moment that we had to stop comparing. It was not a competition of who had it worse or who had it better or who handled it better. It was really two very unique experiences. And we realized in that moment, the only way we were going to find our way back to each other again was to respect those spaces and to realize that they were sacred, meaning set apart. Like there are moments in our lives, you're right, military or not military, just any marriage can understand that there are moments in our life that are sacred. They are set apart from the normal everyday experiences. It may have been the day you had your child. And usually these moments are, are multisensory because that's how we create memories in our brain. They're very multisensory moments that our amygdala in our brain lights up and captures all of our five senses in that moment and creates a memory with it. That's the kind of quickest way I can explain how our brain holds memories. So whether it's you had a child or I had a friend of mine who actually had a traumatic experience with having her child and that was sacred, meaning very few people could understand what that day was like for her. No matter how many times she told that story, really only she could know in her heart knew what that experience was like, what it meant to her, how it changed her. And so these sacred moments that can be both joy-filled or traumatic either way um, are through our five senses, it creates a memory and it changes somehow this trajectory of our life. It's like a significant moment in your life, multi-sensory again, that shifts our life somehow. And so it takes up significant space in our story. And so my husband and I started using the word or the phrase sacred spaces as a way to communicate to each other as a way to say to the other person, it's okay that you don't fully understand what this moment was like for me, but this is a sacred space and I need you to respect it. I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to hear it and understand that it's important to me and it changed me and who I am or how I see the world. And so for us, that became a way for us to communicate. And it also kind of cued the other person, hey, tread really lightly on this because Um, You may not fully understand it, but if you can just tread lightly and give me some space to learn from it, grow from it, sit here in it, whatever it is that I need to do, then that's the most honoring, most loving thing that you could do for me right now. And so that's where we kind of had kind of created this terminology, sacred space. And so I knew, once I knew I was like literally putting on some boots and going overseas that I was getting as close as I could possibly get in a very sensory way to at least be able to step into the country of Afghanistan, smell the air, see the mountains, experience what it felt like to get on some of the aircraft that he might have gotten on and maybe be just one step closer to experiencing some of these sacred spaces in his life that had changed who he was and that maybe that would bring us back together just a little bit more.
0: I'll tell you, I, uh, I'm really resonating with what you're sharing, Corey. In 1993, our 16-year-old son, Mark, and his friend Kelly were in a fatal car accident. And a lot of what you're saying is great counsel, for anyone who wants to walk into that grief with a broken person to not have to feel like they have to unwrap it or like compare or anything like that. It's just like you said, just sit with me sometimes. And so that is great counsel for any kind of of uh, a sacred space. And Sharon, if I can just say the number
1: of people that I've had that have reached out that have said, I lost somebody, or I lost a child, um, or I had a miscarriage, or grief is such a sacred space. And this one woman had reached out to me who had lost a child as well. And um, for her, she didn't realize until kind of embracing this terminology that she had spent so much of her time being angry with other people because she felt like that they didn't understand, that they didn't relate, or maybe they didn't try hard enough to relate, or uh, maybe they didn't sit with her in those moments that she was really embracing and feeling the pain that she was experiencing. And for her, for many people who are in grief, that comes really like waves, like a waves hitting a toddler, right? It just kind of hits you in waves. And so for her, for sacred spaces, to be able to put that terminology and forgive everyone for not necessarily knowing exactly how she felt and to accept the fact that they couldn't walk in her shoes and that maybe she didn't really want them to either, but that she learned to communicate that better. And just that act of forgiveness and releasing someone else to say, You don't have to fully understand, and I'm okay with that, and it's okay that I've gone through this, and it's okay that you haven't gone through that. Just did so much for her, and that was one of the most rewarding emails I think I've ever gotten was just to have somebody reintroduce themselves back into their community support circles, but also being able to find the support circles that did understand and how valuable that was because then she could go and say, we share a sacred space. Like we, you may, we may each have our own individual grief where we can't fully understand each other's unique experiences, but we at least share sacred spaces and what that's done and how it's changed us in our life and finding that commonality there. So it's just been very helpful and it's been a wonderful experience to see how it's helped other people.
0: Well, I can, I really understand that freedom that she experienced because I remember uh, going through that myself and like a light bulb went on when I realized I don't really want someone to be able to understand the pain that I'm in. I don't want anyone to have to go through this. And some of the, one of the best pieces of advice that was given to us, and it was actually even the night of Mark's death was from another bereaved father who said, you and your husband are going to grieve differently and it's okay. And let that happen. Uh, Don't expect each other to be exactly the same. And so I didn't have a term for it, but I love that term of sacred spaces. And I, Corey, one of the most emotional parts of your book is your description of day four, especially as you intertwined your experiences in that moment with what Matt had experienced during a really especially horrific battle in Afghanistan. Can you tell us what happened that was so moving for you and also how you realized that now you were creating those sacred spaces for yourself on this trip?
1: Yeah. You know, day four was so interesting. And if anybody goes back to my YouTube channel, because really during this trip at the time, I didn't know I was going to write a book. At the time. I was trying to get as much information out each day as possible. And so I was doing, you know, the biggest goal that I had was a video blog each day. And I really wanted it to be raw and whatever I felt, I was going to show it. And so if anybody goes back and looks at that day four, it's a pretty emotional video of how it really impacted me. And I think it impacted me in several ways. One was when I, we did know before the trip started, like, like actually, the morning before, as I was leaving, I texted my husband because for security reasons, they weren't announcing and even telling us all these places we were going to be going. So once I found out that Jalalabad was an option, I the first thought that I had was, I I've heard that word before. I think it's possible that Matt may have crossed paths somehow with Jalalabad, and so commonly known as Jabad, and so. I messaged him and I said, I think we might be going to Jalalabad. And he was so excited. And so this is before I even left on a trip. And and it hit me that I had not heard him. I had not listened to his stories because here I was going someplace that obviously was meaningful to him. And I had not remembered the name. And I just felt so convicted. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, if I had missed this important detail, what else have I not been listening to Like at some point, I think we do that in marriage. I think it's really easy to be married for sometimes even decades. And maybe you've heard the same story three times and you don't, you know, you stop listening or it's just kind of mumbling in the background and, and we can't be perfect every day and and hear every single word our spouse or even our children say all the time. But we do that, don't we? We just kind of like kind of halfway listen, but it was so hurtful in my heart to realize that I had, there's some, there's some major information that I had not paid attention to. And I was really regretting that at this moment. And so the day that we were going in, you know, my husband had said to me, if you go to Jalalabad, make sure you take a look at the memorial that's there. And I didn't even know what he was talking about with that. Like, I just, I felt so in the dark and, and it really wasn't until I walked up to the memorial because it was like this gate that you walk in to the forward operating base which is basically just <laughs> a base of like makeshift houses made out of like plywood and and whatever but it's it's right you know it's right there close to the border of Pakistan and, and so I saw the memorial and and what's even worse is I wanted to take a picture I'm being very vulnerable here at this point because I don't think this is even actually in the book I had actually I wanted to take a picture with the memorial because I wanted to, I was so excited to be in Afghanistan and to, to, I was pinching myself. Like I can't believe I as a military spouse, I'm getting to see what Afghanistan was like. And I realized the weight of that and the excitement of that. And so I had someone take a picture of me with a memorial and it wasn't until after I had taken that picture that I went to the other side of the memorial with another list of names that I realized, all of the names of our soldiers that had been killed in action from that deployment was on that memorial etched in stone. And I was touching the memorial that so many of our soldiers, like they had to send their battle buddies home, their bodies home. And that was the last time they saw them. And that memorial was like the last that they had as far as a connection. And so I was so ashamed because I looked back at my picture and I was smiling. I was smiling in front of this memorial and I just was hit with this this feeling again and again of you don't get it. You haven't been paying attention. You're not listening. And that was just this constant message I was getting. And so following you know all of these convicting moments that's kind of leading up to kind of this bigger moment for me was I was feeling, you know, all of these Gold Star families, all of these wives who had lost their soldiers, I was the one back at home that had sat with them and visited with them and sat in their grief and and I felt guilty for being at this place that they should have been at. Like, why was I being chosen when who really needed the closure was the family members? Like, that's who needed this closure. That's the people that needed to walk on the sand and and see the mountains and breathe the air. And that was the last thing that their son or their daughter had experienced was Afghanistan. And so... I was feeling the weight of all of this emotionally and and about that time like all of the emotions started to really surface and it was not I was not going to be able to hold it back at this point I was feeling these family members grief I was feeling the conviction of not paying attention to even my husband and his grief and the loss that he experienced because he had um, a chaplain, their role is to provide religious freedom for their soldiers, but it's also to be with the dead and the dying. And so my husband had been changed by death in Afghanistan, the death of his friends, um, being around even Afghanistan children and even Taliban that they had worked on in that operating room. Like they served so many people, and he came home different because of his experience with that. And so it was hitting me all at once, and I just uncontrollably, tears um, started to happen. And one of the, um, secretary of defense staff was in the room with me when I started to lose it. And he's a civilian and he was like, Oh my goodness, what's happening to this woman? Like she's (laughs) all of a sudden crying uncontrollably and I don't know what to do with myself. And he came up to me, tried to like, kind of say a joke to kind of break me out of this moment and asked if I just had allergy problems or something. And, and it hit, like, I wanted to like express to him like i wanted to bring him into this emotional moment and help him understand the weight of what we were about to walk through and i opened my mouth to try to explain it to him like the weight of these families the weight of my marriage the weight of these soldiers the weight of afghanistan like it was all hitting me so much and i opened my mouth and i realized nothing i could say there was nothing i could say where he would fully understand and that's where it hit me like that's where exactly how my husband felt. And that's how many, so many of our veterans feel, or that's how many of how you have felt Sharon and the loss of your son. And it's, it's how so many other people listening in their own sacred spaces have felt where you just go to open your mouth and you realize they can't understand and you want them to so badly. But that is like the biggest thing of all of this is what do we do with that? Right? Like, how do we, how do we find a way to reconnect? So that was day four for me. It was so much more than that. But that was what I realized was, you know, and there was some fun things too. There was a lot of role reversal moments where, you know, the soldiers there got very excited that there was a military spouse there. Like they wanted to show me everything. Like they wanted to show me where they slept and what they ate. And, and at one point they were like, you should call your husband and wake him up because that's what he always does. Right? Like when we're in Afghanistan, it's our time. So we call and we wake up our spouses and and so I did, I picked up the phone and I called him and I'm hearing helicopters in the background and he can't hear them and I'm trying to explain it. And I'm like, this is exactly a role reversal. And I realized this is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal of helping families really understand each other's experiences.
0: Well, I'm getting emotional listening to you talk. So I I have a sense that as military families listen to what you've just described. Uh, you're going to be really touching on some raw nerves and emotions, and I just appreciate your vulnerability and how you are helping not just military families, but those of us who are not so closely connected to better understand what our soldiers are doing. You uh, mentioned that your husband as a chaplain I mean, he has to be there in the darkest moments. And he was there in that battle and your description in your book of how just one right after the other of the soldiers were losing their lives in that particular battle. And But then another scene you painted was when he was in the operating room with children and some of whom did not survive. And so you, in your book, you say, as you were getting ready for deployment, you said... Like many military spouses, I didn't realize I was saying goodbye to more than just my husband. You've kind of touched on that, but can you be more specific? And uh, how can military spouses prepare for deployment with that possibility in mind? Yeah,
1: it's it's kind of a double-edged sword, I think, you know, because so much of using this terminology and, and maybe taking a step to listen to each other a little bit more you know, there's a real temptation to try to get it perfect. And that's not really what this message I think is about. It's because on one hand, I didn't realize that when I said goodbye to him for that deployment, I didn't, I mean, I figured he might come home different. I figured, you know, that loud noises would startle him. I figured that he would have some time to need to get adjusted to kids again and, and the squealing loudness that children bring. And, and I was kind of trained up or forewarned on some of the basics of what we're kind of taught as military families of what to expect but I didn't realize that our our full experiences of being apart from each other for that long that we would grow in a lot of ways in good ways that we would um, change in ways that weren't in sync too and a good example of that was he came home with this carpe diem, like a lot of soldiers do, mentality of live life to the fullest. Like I've seen death, I've seen boredom, I've seen being complete, out, completely out of control. So let's co- come home, and why wouldn't we go out to eat? And who cares how much that costs? And let's go do this and that. And and you know, here I had been at home, and the only way I could survive was to wrestle life into submission and control it, and have routine and structure and because I was potty training a very stubborn child, you know? And so just realizing that he had come home a different person. I was saying goodbye to who we were as a couple before that. And that had I known that, I don't know if I could have done anything differently. I don't know if I could have... How do you prepare for what you don't know is going to happen, you know, in six months through a year. And so that's why I'm saying the message isn't so much on perfection and getting it just right. I think what it is actually is being able to open our minds that if we could say we're about to, especially if there's anyone listening that's about to go into a deployment or any kind of separation, I think being able to say, you know, we don't know what the next three months or the six months or a year is going to bring us, but we do know that we're going to be having very different experiences. And so I'm going to keep my mind open, I'm going to keep my ears open, and I'm going to do my best to get to know who you're becoming during this time and who I'm becoming during this time so that we have perhaps a little less shock when we get home. And that's what I think that I wish that I would have known differently, that I didn't realize I was saying goodbye to who I wanted my husband to be, and that he was going to come back whoever I guess he was supposed to be or was going to be, regardless of what I wanted. And I think this experience also taught me that he felt the same way.
0: One of the most poignant scenes in your book is when, during a particularly emotional moment in your marriage, Matt looked at you and asked you, am I broken? How did that affect you? And what kind of changes in Matt showed up in your family when he came home for two weeks of r and if you're gone for a significant amount of time usually 9 months or more um
1: your service member can come home for 2 weeks and for you know as as lovely and as wonderful as that sounds because we want so much to see each other again it comes with a lot of anxiety for a lot of our service members they they feel very guilty for coming home um in fact you mentioned the battle that we lost 8 soldiers during one particular moment in October of that year and there are several soldiers that in, that were in leadership positions that were actually home on R&R when that happened. And while they and their family members are so glad they were home and safe, they still carry with them to this day the guilt that they weren't there being a leader and maybe they could have brought someone home. And so for a lot of our service members, that coming home is wonderful and we're excited, but we're also very nervous of how much has changed and and where do we really want to be? And so for my husband coming home during that R&R, we, he saved his till almost the very end, letting a lot of other people come home first. And so we had already gone through that battle. We had lost many, many service members. He had had really, as a chaplain, given his 110% during this deployment And so by the time he came home, he was exhausted. In fact, he had taken his patches off of his uniform so nobody would know that he was a chaplain coming home because if one more person asked for counsel or needed to talk or wanted to share a story, he thought he wasn't going to make it home. And so by the time he came home, he was not only physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually exhausted. He also did not anticipate the triggers that he would have, the time he needed, the sensory overload that he was going through here at home, just by going from gravel and different shades of tan and gray and green to all the colors of America and all the perfumes when you get off the plane and and his mom calling and me needing him and the kids needing him. And it was just so overwhelming. His sweet mom had, in fact, I did a podcast interview with his mom about this story And how they've rebuilt their relationship since. But she so desperately and understandably wanted to hear her son's voice when he came home that she called one too many times and he picked up that phone and and unleashed all of his emotions on that phone call. And it was the wrong place and the wrong time and not something his mom was anticipating. And honestly, it was the first time I really realized that something had changed. Like this is all of it that he had experienced had really impacted him. And we had a lot, we had a long road in front of us. And so I think that was one of the moments that where he really did break down after that call and really just realizing the weight that he had just taken out all of his exhaustion and anger, even at life and evil and sin in the world and war and all of that on his mom and on us. And and just really realized he had changed like he I don't think he had seen it yet and so for him to bring me that question to say is this it like am i broken is this am i done was a significant moment for us because number one he wasn't broken to me he was he was different and i was different too and there were definite moments during um our re- reintegration and i'm sure most people who are married listening to this have had moments where they've said you know, we've we've got too much baggage. We've got too much, too many wounds. We've got too much that we're bringing to each other, and it feels like our marriage is broken. And I think for us, we realized in that moment, no, that's we can't be broken. Like there, there's no point, even in our relationship with God, where we're too broken for Him. And the real question was going to be if that's how he really felt, if he felt broken, which means he also felt useless um, to us and to whoever he was going back to, that somehow, I didn't know how, but somehow my job was going to have to be, how am I going to be God to him, like not a God, but how am I going to be the hands and feet of God to him to show him that he's not broken, that he still has a place, and that he doesn't have to be anything for me right now, that he can just be who he is and where he's at and give him a chance to rest. And rebuild, but that he was not too broken for us. And that's, I think, a bigger message of what marriage can be.
0: I think it's important to remind listeners that your husband is a man of faith, of deep faith, and he was reflecting that faith in his work. And so I, that actually can be hopeful to listeners who are struggling, that even people who go into this dark place Equipped and with a strong foundation of faith, can struggle and can wrestle with what they are seeing and how does God fit into all of that? And and I love your picture, uh, Corey, of being in the hands and feet of God and being uh, representative of God's love and peace and a safe place. And marriage is such an incredible place where we can learn how to be that for a spouse. And we each have our turns, don't we? Where we need our spouse to be that for us. And this was your time to be that turn. You used the term reintegration. And I think that means that when he came home from deployment, I love that word because there is that huge reintegration into what your life was as normal. But what were some of your other challenges as a military couple? How were you different? And how did your understanding of sacred spaces help you navigate that foreign land of after deployment?
1: Yeah, so many things had changed. And for us, as re- you know, a lot of people had told us to, you know, take some time to find your new normal. And again, I thought, you know, we were going to be dealing with more of the basic things, you know, but for years, in hindsight, Matt would say to me that he felt like he came home to an angry wife. Um, And I thought for years that that had meant that, you know, I really had become more independent. You know, I had to, I I didn't feel like I had another choice. I mean, I did have a choice to crumble and fall apart, but I chose the other route, which is I'm going to figure this out, how to solo parent and, and so to me, I had grown far more confident in my skills. Like if something broke around the house, my first thought was, you know, I wish Matt was here, but my next thought was he's not. So I guess I better figure it out, you know? And so over time, you know, whether it was a parenting issue, a household issue, a financial issue, or or whatever, I had really grown in my confidence and, and my independence and my ability to handle, even you know the toughest days had stretched me far beyond what I thought I could handle and yet I had survived them. So in a lot of ways as a military spouse, what seemed really stressful for the average person was like easy compared to what could have been handed to me. And so I thought that that's what he had meant, that he had come home to an angry, more independent wife that I just was kind of closed off and I got it, I don't need you. It took me years, and actually I didn't see it until this trip, that I really was angry. I was afraid to admit it, but I was angry that um, this deployment had changed us, had changed him, had changed our marriage, and I was angry about that. I was angry that I had no control or say-so in it. I was angry because I didn't know what to do with it. I was angry because... um, the dynamics of our relationship were taking you know it was taking a lot more work to communicate um or you know if he was really I was angry because, you know, there were, we would go to the mall as a family and he would be overwhelmed by the the crowds of people or the noises or whatever. And we'd have to abandon whatever it was that we as a family had said we would do that day. And I was angry about that. And I knew that I couldn't take it out on him because it wasn't his choice and it wasn't something that he wanted to go through. But I was angry that it had changed my life and I didn't have any say so. And I had nowhere to take that. I couldn't blame the military. I couldn't blame him. And I There was just nowhere to put it, and so I just, like a lot of military spouses I talked to, I stuffed it down inside, and it turned into a river of resentment that had nowhere to go except for just building up in me. And so I think he sensed it, but he couldn't put his finger on exactly what that was. I think for him, you know, there was definitely flashbacks and there was grief that he had to go through. He lost several of his friends. There were anniversary dates that came with that. There was, you know, one that stands out to both of us was we were going to resume watching our favorite show, which at the time was Grey's Anatomy. And there was one operating room scene that he had a flashback of the operating room in Afghanistan. And he left the room during a commercial break. And when it was time for it to come back on, he didn't come back. And so when I went to go find him, he was up in our bedroom in fetal position on the floor. And he was, when I asked him what was wrong, he played out like moment by moment something that had happened in the operating room as if he wasn't even there in the United States. He was playing it out as if he was reliving it. And that was a huge wake up of just like, this is, this is not going to be what it was before. Like, there's a lot more to be mindful of. There's a lot more to be thoughtful of each other. we've got to figure out how do we listen to each other better and how do we respect each other more and and that's again where i think sacred spaces at least started the communication back for us where i could say you know when he would recount those moments and he would have a flashback for me to be able to just sit and listen and not just sit and listen until it was over but actually sit and listen to every detail and not every marriage can handle that i want to be able to say that and it's okay that if you have a marriage that you can't handle um, extreme details like that, that being able to, to reach out to a clinician or someone that is trained to handle that, Matt and I are both clinicians as well. And so we had made an agreement ahead of time that we would be able to handle it. If we couldn't, that we'd bring in a third professional entity into our relationship to be able to listen. But even having that professional to sit and listen gave me the ability to sit and listen through their ears of what my husband was trying to share. And so Sacred Spaces was the beginning of conversating differently and respecting each other instead of just trampling over each other's experiences and and just waiting for our turn. And I think that's something that all marriages struggle with, is we tend to have conflict and wait for our turn to talk next that we're not even listening to what the other person is saying. So it was reintegration was tough for us. Um, And I often recommend to a lot of couples, no major decisions for half of the amount of time that they were gone. So if they're gone for a year long deployment, no major decisions for six months, because you really do have so much of that new normal to establish.
0: I want to remind listeners, Corey, that you have a website. Um, Can you tell us what that website is? Yes, absolutely. I
1: actually have two now. One is my website where you can find out more about me. Um, it's just my name, CoryWeathers.com, C-O-R-I-E. Weathers like the weather outside with an S. Um, and you can find out more about me and my podcast um, that is from um, where I really focus on military and first responder relationships. Um, but that's even starting to expand to a lot of our medical professional Um a lot of people who go through a lot of traumatic things and have these very extreme situations in their careers. You can find out more about the book there. And then I also have lifegiver.org. It's actually life giver.org where you can find more of a platform of blogs and articles and the podcast and. Even a blog that is specifically designed for chaplain spouses, or you could throw in pastor's wives in there because it's such a unique experience to go through serving people, especially serving people who are going through extreme pain, and how do we wrestle through our own faith system and take care of ourselves as we're out there as wounded healers.
0: Well, the reason I wanted to insert that here is because you have so much to offer, and Um, that we can't cover in our, our interview time right now. And I want to make sure that listeners know that there is a place where they can tap into all of these resources and many of them are free go there because uh, Corey has a passion for offering help and hope and it's rich. Her, her blogs are rich. Her website is just packed with help and hope. And so I hope that many of you will stop by and check out those great resources. As I think about your, you touched on something that I think is so important and it comes through in your book over and over again But it bears repeating where you talk about listening, how important it is to listen. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like practically?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, again, it's not about perfection, right? Um, What I experienced during the trip was so extreme. You know, I was sitting in the pocket of all five of my emotions I mean, while the entire duration of why, while I was awake and what you said at the very beginning of you felt my exhaustion and I really was exhausted because I was really taking in every piece of sensory information I could take in and try to learn from every moment of the day. And so that is not a way that anybody can live for a long duration of time. And so It is not recommended that when I say that we need to listen more to our spouses, it doesn't mean that we have to ask for a level of perfection of ourselves as if we never should turn that off. And so, but it's a lot more about how do we be more intentional in our listening? And so there are times when you know, our spouse is going over the grocery list, that that's a different kind of listening than if they're telling us about a a very difficult day that they just had and knowing how to differentiate the two. And so being able to say, you know what, he's talking to me about, you know, some toxic leadership or some difficult circumstances that he had during the day. Maybe I should put down whatever it is I'm cooking right now and actually look at him and listen to what he's saying to me. You know, and I hear a lot of wives in particular that say, yes, but he doesn't do that for me. And, and that's really a place that I was at in my marriage too. When I say that I had a lot of resentment because I felt like I had done so much work carrying through the reintegration and trying to help him reconnect with, you know, the with the family. And I felt like a lot of people feel where I felt like I had done so much. It was his turn. Right. And so we often so many times go, well, I've done a lot of listening and I've done a lot of talking and he won't listen or she won't listen or I've done all the work. It's their turn. And I just had this mental image of everybody in a boxing ring going to their separate corners saying, I'm not, I'm not playing anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to try anymore because it's your turn. And what I had to realize was that being able to listen isn't always about whose turn it is. Sometimes we give the other person a turn because we know we're going to need that turn next. And that pursuing your marriage is something we should be doing all the time. It's not about whose turn it is. And even writing Sacred Spaces, I knew, was a huge risk. I was asking a lot of very weary military spouses to keep pursuing their marriage and to listen better and to be more intentional. And so many of them were so exhausted waiting for the other person to do something. It was their turn. And the real mission here is... It's never—if you want to fight for your marriage, it's never about taking turns. It's about how am I going to pursue today because God pursues me every day. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't say, I'm going to sit back and wait for you to do your half. He loves me every day. He pursues me every day. He forgives me every day. And even when I make it all about me, He shows up the next day and He goes, I'm still here. And and that was the message that I had to learn for Him to be able to go— you know He was trying. I'm not saying that he wasn't. But I had to look and examine my own heart and go, how can I listen better? How can I pay attention more so that I can pursue him in that way? Because that Jalalabad example was coming up again, and I was realizing I don't want to miss these really important pieces that they're giving me when they're talking about his day. I need to be able to pay attention and know what he's talking about. So practically, that means stopping what you're doing, Standing in front of them, use your five senses. You'd be amazed how much you're going to hear somebody and how much your ears open up when you hold hands with a person that's talking to you. Look at them in their eyes. Pay attention to their nonverbals. Repeat back what they're saying when they pause so that you can make sure that you're actually understanding what it is that they're saying. So some of those just practical things will have them walk away feeling like, wow, they actually were present for me. They didn't keep cooking or working on their emails or whatever, when I was sharing something important, they actually stopped what they were doing and paid attention to what I was saying. And you'd be surprised how much you'll remember.
0: Corey. those are such great practical tips and insights, and really rooted in our hearts of uh, being servants and being sacrificial. And I love what you said about uh, how we think it's their turn now. And yet, really, it's, it's never that way in a marriage if you want your marriage to flourish and to grow. And at the end of your book, you really speak to marriage and share some of your spiritual reflections on the power of marriage. There's one paragraph that I asked you to read. Could you read that now? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: I wrote, what I anticipated before I set out on my journey was a better understanding of my husband. What I actually discovered was the reflection of myself and how certain behaviors and beliefs of mine impacted him and our relationship. The previous resentment I had experienced was not only a result of the loss I was grieving or my anger at sin in the world. It was also the sin in my own heart and so and my own selfishness. What do you mean by those words? Yeah, there's so much packed in there. <laughs> you know, You know, like I said, I thought, you know, I really had so much resentment about how things had changed or at least not gone according to plan. And I think people listening, you've probably had many moments in your life that haven't gone the way that you would have liked for them to have gone or the way that you would have planned. And my marriage was different. My husband was different than I wanted. Um, you know, and it's so easy to even judge, our spouses and go, if they would just do this, or if they would just change that, if they would just parent this way, if they would just drive this way, you know, and I was so angry, um, because of how my life was more difficult than I expected that going on this trip, I, I had to, I really saw it. I really saw it in myself. I had to grieve what I had lost. And I think that was a healthy grieve, but there was a moment where I, cl- I had closed my eyes, and I had put myself in his shoes as if I was actually in a C-17, which is one of the very, very large green Air Force cargo planes that can fit a tank on it, like it's a very big plane. And I was sitting in there, and I had, and we were flying, and I had closed my eyes, and I, I could smell the diesel fuel, I could feel the rumble of the plane, and I had just... And I'm sure it was a moment from God that he had kind of reminded me in my memory of a time that he had told me about him being in a C-17 and flying with his fallen soldiers in their caskets to a different location on a C-17. And, and it was one of those stories that I heard, but I kind of like, I, ha, I wasn't there and I didn't know how to really relate to what he was saying. And I knew it was a big deal, but I just couldn't imagine it. And, and the problem was, is I didn't imagine it. I just listened to it as if I was listening to some stranger's story. And so in that moment in the C-17, I closed my eyes, and God gave me that mental image of him sitting across from me, but with his hands on the casket of his friend. And I realized how much I didn't listen to him. And I was more angry with the fact that I, that I got a different husband than I wanted. Then I was sad and feeling that moment for him and how that changed him and how that made him in some ways a better person, that I had skipped over something very significant that had happened in his life. And instead, I was just mad because life was more difficult than I wanted it to be. And I think that was the moment that I realized I have sinned against him that as much as I wanted to blame all the problems on war or, or difficulty or just life or whatever, that I had just as much to add to this equation, and that my own selfishness had separated us, at least to some degree, and that I had to accept that my selfishness was holding us back from God's greatness in our life. And so for me to realize, I need that grace from Him just as much as He needs that grace from me. I deeply need Him coming home from this trip to forgive me for that selfishness that He was right. I was an angry person, and He didn't deserve to come home to an angry person. He deserved to come home to somebody who wanted to listen to Him and wanted to embrace the new Him and wanted to walk through life as with the new Him, not somebody that was angry and selfish and wanted life to be easier. And so, coming home and realizing how selfish I was opened my mind to the fact that I needed his forgiveness and I needed his grace, and just as much as I needed to give it to him. And that if I, and that it made me that much more willing to give him grace each day and forgive him each day for not being perfect. Because, especially being in the ministry and especially being in a serving profession, we tend to accidentally put our own selves on pedestals and expect perfection and perfect faith perfect strength, perfect self-care, as if we have all the answers when we're just as human, and that I needed to let go of needing this man in my life to be perfect, and that if he felt broken, that that was okay, and that I could appreciate that brokenness if that's what it needed to be, and part of that was extending grace.
0: I know that your faith is uh, very personal and very important to you, and We also know that marriage has uh, lots of broken places along the way. How does your personal faith in Jesus give you freedom as you recognize your need for forgiveness and to be really powered by grace?
1: Yeah, I feel like it's that Jesus and I are in a constant, like, me learning what does grace actually look like? Because I think our faith at least for me, I'll speak for me, is such a mysterious thing. It's, you know, and I tend to kind of have that science brain that wants to have everything make sense and then I'll believe it. And so there's something about our relationship with Jesus that's so mysterious and something that you can't wrestle to the ground and control. And and um, I think that my own personal faith was to realize that, you know, life is hard and there there is deep loss and deep suffering that we're going to go through in this life And some of us, I I can't even say some of us go through it more than others because you never know what somebody is going through. You never know the deep pain that's going on in their life. And, And suffering is subjective. We all know it. We all experience it. We all may experience it in different ways, but it is definitely something that we all feel. And for me, it was embracing that God never promised a perfect life. He never promised it to be easy. And He never promised that our faith that once we believe in Jesus and we have a Savior and, and we have this relationship with Him, that we'll be able to have eternity with Him, that that, def- that, that means we're suddenly going to have an easy life. That um, suffering is actually what, what deepens our character. It's what deepens our relationships. It's what makes us, some in some cases, feel more alive than we felt before. And so for me and my relationship with Jesus, I think it helped me understand that um, no amount of my suffering, as deep and as painful as it can be, will ever compare to the peak of suffering that He experienced on the cross. To realize that He experienced more than we could ever experience in our entire lifetime, all even heaped up into one, that He still experienced the peak of it. And that if He could still believe, and if He could still have a relationship with His Father, if He could still choose, Um, to serve us and to love us and sacrifice himself for us, that if he could go through life's difficulties, then I can definitely handle whatever I'm faced with every day. And if he can also forgive me, when I saw my own ugliness, um, it's definitely not something that you want to sit in every day. And we need to be careful to not shame ourselves as if, you know, that we're supposed to beat ourselves up every day. But if we could just see ourselves soberly every day and realize that, Jesus does forgive us for that when we ask for it, and that He renews it for us, and He teaches us how to walk differently and how to love differently and how to give that gift to our marriage, that I firmly, absolutely believe, especially today more than any other day, that without Jesus, we have no way to push through the selfishness that we bring to marriage. We absolutely need a Savior to remind us that there's something bigger than us and that uh, that marriage asks something different from us, and that it, it's a great metaphor for um, God's relationship with us.
0: Could you speak just one more time to that military spouse who is struggling with anger and resentment and grief over losing the life that they thought they uh, were going to have, and in particular in the context of faith? It is so hard to
1: make that sacrifice every day to serve your kids, to take care of yourself, to go through life's difficulty, put everything that you have into it, only to have sometimes life get even harder when you try to make your marriage work and you realize that now you've been handed a whole other like basket of things to work on. And so many of our military spouses are exhausted. So many of our military spouses um, give everything that they've got and, and really are struggling with that river of resentment. And my message to those military spouses is that you know you don't have to carry that resentment, that it doesn't do anything for you, it doesn't do anything for your marriage. And for me, um, flying out of Afghanistan, I realized that um, I had the opportunity to, that those mountains in Afghanistan may have taken my husband's innocence, but I realized that it also brought home a stronger person. It brought home somebody that's a wonderful father, And it brought home so many other things that brought a depth to his character that I love and would never change about him. And so I realized for me that I had the opportunity to leave my resentment there too. And and that doesn't mean that each day I'm not tempted to pick it up again. But I think I would just invite other military families to to not carry that resentment and to lay it down. And even better to lay it down in your relationship with God to say, you know what, God, I don't have to understand everything that's in front of me. I don't know how to have to handle all of it. But I know that I don't have to carry the resentment that life is harder than I thought it was or that I feel angry that, that it's harder than I thought it was. And so to be able to say, I'm going to lay that down, I'm going to sacrifice that, that God doesn't desire for you to walk through this life of difficulty with anger. He actually expects you to walk through it with joy. But you're only going to find that if you let go of that exhaustion of me first, or it's all about me, or I need things to be different for me, but instead to say it's sin in the world that causes war and evil and death in the world. And we have to be able to just set that down and trust a God that's bigger than us that can handle it and help us walk through it.
0: Corey, thank you so much for your transparency and your heart for offering help and hope to military families and uh, practical help in building strong marriages and not giving up on marriages. And I just want listeners to know that uh, what Corey is speaking about, that personal relationship to Christ, it might sound really weird and over the top and hard to understand. And that's why I would encourage you to visit Corey's website to read her book, Sacred Spaces, or go to markink.org, where we have the contact information for Corey so that we can offer you the help and hope of the gospel. If you are struggling to understand who this Jesus is, I suggest that you start reading uh, the book of John because in the book of John, you'll walk along those dusty roads of Galilee with Jesus and you'll see him interacting with people and you'll see how he responded to those really hard places of life and you'll see the love that he has for his people. That is a great first step, but also reach out. Visit the websites, reach out, and let us know that you need help and we will do everything we can to help you. You've been listening to a conversation between myself, Sharon Betters, and Corey Weathers, and we pray that this resource that has been produced by Mark Inc. Ministries has offered you help and hope. You can go to markinc.org where you can find many more stories like Corey's that will offer you help and hope in those really broken places of life.